The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, December 18th, 2020 from Slate at the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Democrats came into the 2020 election with about a 38-seat majority. I say about because, you know, Justin Amash was Republican. He turned Libertarian. Democrats were poised, were predicted to win seats to add to their cushion. They did not. After Election Day, there was counting, still counting to be done. It was looking like they'd be heading into the 117th Congress with a 10-seat majority. Then Joe Biden began plucking Democratic members of Congress for his cabinet and staff. Louisiana Representative Cedric Richmond, Ohio's Marsha Fudge, and yesterday, Deb Holland of New Mexico for Secretary of Interior. This means that Nancy Pelosi will enter the session with a six-seat majority. Now, the members I mentioned, they are from safe districts. That doesn't mean, however, that their seats will be filled soon, even if they will most likely be filled by a Democrat. Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine, has not set a date. New Mexico law indicates the new election will take place within between 70 and 90 days of the seat becoming vacant. I think 77 and 91, actually. Louisiana, I don't know, they could vote in March. Not much clearer there. But the famed first hundred days when the time is right to pass legislation, there won't be much give if three Democrats defect and one is ailing at home with, I don't know, a bout of gout. Or if one is called away for personal matters and one just wants to make a point because the bill doesn't go far enough, there's always one of them, and two defect. Or if seven Democrats just say, hey, we're really important. We're going to withhold our vote unless we get everything we want. Like I say, not a lot of wiggle room. On the plus side, eh, it might not matter. The odds of winning both Senate seats in Georgia for the Democrats, very slim. And Mitch McConnell is going to kill any big bill out of the House anyway. So with that in mind, maybe the House is merely just the best stocked farm system for other Democratic projects. Yeah, let's, uh, let's nab a congresswoman to be president of Brown. Let's lure away a congressman to run Google. Maybe we get another to be the new editor of The New Yorker. And hell, I don't know. Adam Schiff, he can head the selection committee at Sundance. Congress. Con- what's Congress? What does Congress do? No need to ensure a majority. Doesn't really matter anyway. And if you think I'm wrong, the midterms could be brutal. And now, remembrances of things Trump. So first, a little backstory. August 2019, a British teenager named Harry Dunn was killed after being hit by an American motorist driving the wrong way. That American was Anne Sakoulis, the wife of a U.S. intelligence officer, and she was able to flee England and return to America without facing legal prosecution because of a claim of diplomatic immunity. The case gained prominence and notoriety in the U.K., And then President Trump invited Harry Dunn's parents to meet with him in the White House. And there, he had a surprise for them. Without clearing it or notifying them beforehand, he had Ms. Sekoulis with him in the next room. He did not offer to the parents the legal redress they sought, but like a game show final act surprise, he sprang it on them. Would you like to meet your son's killer? She's here now. She wants to say hello. Wait, Harry Dunn's parents said. No. We do not want that, they later told CBS. Wrong setting. You know, we've said 
all along that you know we are willing to meet her we are still willing to meet her um but it needs to be on uk soil you know and with therapists and mediators and that's not just for us that's for her as well mm -hmm. you know she's traumatized her children are traumatized yeah. you know to be thrown into a room together with no prior warning mm -hmm. that's not good for her mental health it's certainly not good for ours here is how president trump described the rebuffed surprise meeting she was in the room right out there. We met right here in these, this area. And I offered to uh, bring the person in question in, and they weren't ready for it. But I did offer. I spoke with uh, Boris. He asked me if I'd do that, and I did it. Uh, unfortunately, they wanted to meet with her, and unfortunately, when we had everybody together, they decided not to meet, uh, perhaps. They had lawyers involved by that time. I don't know exactly. But as you heard in the parents' own words, that wasn't the case. So there, I just played some tape of President Trump lying about the parents of a dead teenager after his surprise meeting was rebuffed. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, it is an Antan twig. That's what the spiel shall be. But first, Maria Konnikova is a poker expert and, in fact, the author of a very well-received book on her becoming quite a good player, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And on the show, we tap her general expertise, her, her expertise that is revealed in her book, and we apply that expertise to all manner of claims, scientific mostly. But in this conversation, I wanted to specifically tap Maria's poker knowledge as we examine a couple of claims likening political outcomes to poker. So I've wanted to say it for a while, but join me and Maria Konnikova as we embark on Is That Bullshit? Donald Trump Election Edition. From time to time, but not for a time, we are joined by our esteemed guest colleague, regular contributor, Maria Konnikova. Maria, I should say, is the author of The Biggest Bluff, which was named a 100 best book by the New York Times. Maybe they say notable, but I sense that they were saying it was really one of the best. And we talk about on our show issues of perhaps scientific or empirical data claims that need to be subjected to scrutiny. We have the title for this segment, Is That Bullshit? And Maria joins me once again. Thanks for coming back on, Maria. Thanks for having me, Mike. I've missed you. Yes. Uh, you've, you've frequently contributed one of the hundred notable segments on our show. But I'm, damn it, I'm going to say it. It's more than notable. It's exemplary. Aw, <laughs> uh, I love you too. <laughs> Before we start on our topic of the day, which is uh, concerning masks and pandemics and time to talk, I do want to ask you about one statement poker-related that was sticking in my craw for a while, especially around election time. They, you know who they are, kept talking about how last time Donald Trump had to draw an inside straight, and this time, and sometimes to amplify the metaphor, they would talk about he has to draw an inside straight flush or something. But the inside straight draw was a pretty constant metaphor, and as far as I know, poker, it basically is saying something that's about, what, an 8% chance? But is there any other nuance to the idea of drawing the the inside straight that is or isn't worthy of application to a long shot 
political win like Donald Trump's in 2016 or, you know, supposed win in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, for people who don't play poker, an inside straight, otherwise known as a gut shot straight, is when basically you're trying to make a straight, which is going to be five cards in a row, and only one card can help you. So when you have an open-ended straight draw, that means that you can have a card on either end come, say you have four, five, and there's a six and a seven on the board. So four, five, six, seven. Now, if a three comes or an eight comes, you've got your straight. That's an open ender. That's great. That's much better than gut shot. Now, if you have a gut shot, that means that there's one of those cards missing in the middle and you need that specific card to make the straight. So that is just for people who don't play poker. But then I think there is some nuance lost because we need to figure out, well, what exact kind of inside straight draw are we holding? In Mm. poker, there's this concept that's called drawing to the nuts, which means I'm drawing to the best hand possible. And in the case of a straight, that means the highest straight possible. But if you have a straight draw, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the high straight draw. You might actually have what's called sometimes the idiot end or the asshole end of the straight, which is the (laughs) low end. So that means that even if you hit your miracle card, you might not win because the other person might actually hold the better end of the straight draw, and you'll go bust. (laughs) So maybe, you know, I'm thinking maybe in 2020, Donald Trump actually had the asshole end of the straight, because if you look at how much better he did than polls or how much better he did than in 2016, he really outperformed either expectations or past performance. It's just that Joe Biden was sitting in a better position and outperformed him. Yeah, I think that that actually, that there's a lot of truth to that. And I mean, in general, the common wisdom is that an inside straight is a great hand to bluff with, because at least you have some equity, which means that you have the possibility of improving. And you're probably holding some cards that means that your opponent doesn't have the best possible hand. But if you're actually drawn to it in order to make it and in order to like actually hit your miracle card, right. that's probably bad strategy because you need insane pot odds to do that because basically you're you're hoping for not for a miracle, but for close to a miracle card. Um, and a lot of people will tell you to never draw to an inside straight. And I think that's actually pretty solid poker advice. You should yeah. be playing based on other things. <laughs> and you should be playing inside straights or gut shot straights for other reasons, not to hit your miracle card, but rather, like I said, to deny equity to your opponent because it's a very good bluffing opportunity, etc. for other strategic considerations. Yeah. In other words, maybe run for president not expecting to win but to help yourself in other places, increase equity other ways. Exactly, exactly. One last thing about this is that if you looked at the 538 odds Mm -hmm. produced by Nate Silver, poker player, who you and I have both played with, actually, very good poker player, he was actually saying in 2016 that Trump had something like a third chance. So that's not, the inside straight analogy is bad because a third of a chance is, I don't know, what would be the better analogy? Something like four cards to a straight flush where you have a lot of possibilities. So I, it's funny. I actually I actually looked at Nate's exact percentages of 2016 in my book, The Biggest Bluff. Mm-hmm. And uh, his odds of Trump winning were your odds of hitting a pair on the flop. Um, that was actually, it was the exact 
percentage for that. And if you've played poker even a few times. That's why I did it. That's why I set those odds, obviously. Of course, <laughs> naturally, because you've memorized my book, as anyone you know who, who cares about me at all should do. Um, but if you've played poker even once, you know that you actually hit a pair on the flop. Not infrequently. Like, it feels like a decent amount of the time. And that's very, very different from hitting your inside straight, which happens much, it does not happen nearly as often. And it feels like kind of a miracle, whereas hitting a pair feels like, yeah, I hit a pair. That happens quite yeah. often. And and by the way, this time around, Nate's 538 odds were something like 10%, which is closer to an- Much in, closer. Yeah. Yep. And, and then I was reading articles about how the Trump legal team thought that his strategy of, uh, you know, claiming fraud and denying the election was a long shot strategy, somewhere between 5 and 10%. And I said to myself, no, that actually is the inside straight odds. Yeah, I mean, the inside straight, you have basically, like, if you're, if there are already four cards on the board, and you have a pair, then you have about 10.5 to one is the odds that you're, you'll hit it versus not. Um, So those aren't great odds, 10.5 to one. I mean, I'm not, I don't particularly want to bet on that. Yeah. Hey, you didn't win. (laughs) Maria Konnikova is the author of The Biggest Bluff. And uh, I think this was our first Is That Bullshit really actually on almost only poker as an analogy. But Maria, thank you very much. Of course. Thank you, Mike. All right. And now the spiel. It is not just any spiel. It is an Antan Twig, our name for a three-week period in which we go back, reflect, collect all the criticism, and answer it here. Now, normally, the Antan Twig, a loose term, this time it's three weeks. Exactly, almost exactly three weeks. Of course, this depends when you listen. So the first thing I want to cop to is a mistake, a big mistake. I said that the Tuskegee experiment purposefully infected men with syphilis to study them. That is not true. That was incorrect. 400 men had syphilis, 200 didn't. Actually, I think it was uh, 399 and 201. And what these researchers did is they simply denied treatment to the ones who had syphilis, even after it became clear that penicillin would treat and cure syphilis. So that was the actual fact of the Tuskegee experiment. My overall point that this was a true, harmful, terrible thing still stands. My other point is there were some great examples in American history of medical experiments gone right. Maybe we should talk about them, too. That also still stands. But maybe I undercut my argument a bit by misstating what the Tuskegee experiment was. Second thing I want to talk about is Sarah Fuller, the first female kicker in college football. No, that's not true. The first female kicker in Division I college football. Also not true. The first female kicker for one of the top teams, what we call a Power Five conference in college football. Yes, that part is true. And on the show, in her debut, I noted that she performed a squib kick. And she seemed to have performed it well. But I also noted this was the subject to a lot of hype a lot of celebrating, a lot of talk of the busting of ceilings, ceilings made of glass, when in fact what it was was a a squib kick with all the pageantry and wonder that the phrase squib kick implies. 
But I did say I would be very pleased and impressed if she scored in a game that had not happened at the time when the squib kick was the only thing that we could point to as her achievement. But it did happen as Sarah Fuller nailed two extra points against Tennessee this weekend. And here comes Sarah Fuller onto the field. Now, last week, two weeks ago, rather, she made history as the first female to ever kick off at the Power 5 level. Now, she can be the first to make an extra point at the Power 5 level. Right through there. That's right. That's right. She scored twice. One of those balls is going to the College Football Hall of Fame. And yeah, it should. Now, I was reading a story in the New York Times about Sarah Fuller and how she and her Vanderbilt teammates and other female kickers, some of those non-Division I, non-Power Conference kickers, thought of what she did. And I noted this. Before scoring in a game last weekend, Fuller on November 28th executed a squib kick to begin the second half of a 41-0 loss to Missouri. The game was notable because of Fuller's presence, but the kick elicited a flood of negative responses on social media. A squib kick is not majestic, nor does it have a high arc. It is usually a short line drive that bounces around before a member of the receiving team can field it. Fuller said, there is always the hate comments or whatever, but I was surprised at how much controversy it drew. Well, you have to realize this, that squib kick Twitter is just toxic. I mean, there are Reddit boards that will break down the squibbiness of a kick. There are fervid fights over who in history had the perfect squibber. Was it Garo Yepremium in a game against the Bills in 78? Or Gary Anderson against the Falcons in 95? You know, then there'll be the debate. True squib kick purists say, can't count Andersons. That was kicked in a dome. Shouldn't count. Okay, that's not what's actually going on here. It's just the phenomenon that I have noticed, which is that we over-dramatize so many things. Sorry, let me say it correctly. We dangerously over-dramatize every single thing to within an inch of its life. So the proper contextualization of Sarah Fuller's squip kick, you know, the first, the first time when she kicked against Missouri in that 41 to nothing loss is something like, oh, cool. She has a chance to make history, a version of history. And she did in a kind of underwhelming way. Let's hope she gets a chance to do more next time. But the original broadcast of the kick was that this was one small kick for squibs, but one giant boot for womanhood. And of course, that kind of over-dramatization is going to inspire some skepticism. And since I've established that everything is over-dramatized, this skepticism will itself be over-dramatized. So the loudest voices will talk about not just, not, not such a great kick, they'll talk about, you know what this is? This is part of an overweening theme in our society. Or it's about putting down men or wokeness or, or squibbiness run amok or anything run amok. Something is definitely run amok in this framing of the squib kick incident. And so I I don't want to run amok. I want to, at best, walk among those who have run amok. And I say, guys, you're all being a little nuts on this one. To which there is a ready-made insult. And it's an overdramatic insult, ready to be lobbed at anyone who points out, guys, you're both wrong. Maybe you should seek to find common ground. And that insult is, oh, you're both sizing it now, aren't you? Poor Sarah Fuller whose only crime 
was being tasked with something called a squib kick. She actually perceives herself to be the subject of derision. She thinks her actions were mostly perceived as or largely perceived as controversial. She didn't know what they were going to say when they talked about her squib kick in the announcing booth is what they did say. Number 32, Sarah Fuller set to kick off for the Commodores. And here she goes, and here's the kick. It is kicked and squibbed down and recovered at the 35-yard line. And there it is, college football history. Vanderbilt's Sarah Fuller becomes the first female to play in a Southeastern Conference or a Power 5 Conference game. And I think most reasonable listeners would listen to that and see the squib and say, all right, they got ahead of themselves. But if people point that out too loudly or too vehemently, you can say, well, now it's become controversial. And you could also say to yourself that that poor Sarah Fuller, she has had to face criticism and backlash for just executing her squib kick. What kind of terrible people would voice that upon her? And it becomes so hard, nearly impossible. Sorry, I'm trying to be overdramatic. It becomes impossible that anyone could come away thinking, and, and this is what I think is the right thing to think, the glaringly right thing to think, it's so hard to come away thinking, you know, that was somewhat notable, but for the following valid reasons, not very notable. That's, that's what everyone's take, I think, should be on the Sarah Fuller squib kick. Now, another odd thing is that the person most likely to have that take is the person who barely paid attention. So with this and with a lot of things, the right impression to have is very much aligns with having almost no impression of it, which isn't to say that this doesn't bear any notice. I mean, if I was a news editor, I'd have written the story about Sarah Fuller being the first kicker at an SEC school, Vanderbilt. And if I were the broadcasters doing the game, I would have been a little less over the top about it, but I still would have emphasized that there's a version of history at play. But it's just so hard for someone to have watched this with interest to come away with the overarching impression that is the proper impression that, that it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't everything. It was just something. This is how it works in politics, right? The more people pay attention, the more impassioned they become, and the more they're likely to put on blinders, the more angry they get, the less likely they are to see the other side of the story, the more likely they are to listen to people telling them it's wrong to see the other side of the story. It's the nearly ignorant voter who can say somewhat logical things like, you know, I want a strong military, but I also think we should have better health care. Or, you know, the ACA was okay, could be better. It certainly is an improvement on nothing. Those are very rational things to say. I'd say those are, those should be the opinions of a clear thinking person. They are harder opinions to come by as we over-dramatize nearly everything. Sometimes we over-dramatize the extent to which we're not over-dramatizing things enough. We say, where is the outrage? And we say this about things that are less than outrageous or about things for which there actually is plenty of outrage. I was just reviewing some debates about the Mueller investigation and where is the outrage was said so often about things that were both so outrageous, like where is the outrage over Donald Trump 
accepting assistance from the Russians. I mean, it was there is why there was an impeachment. But also, where is the outrage over the Schiff memo or the Nunes memo? You know, maybe there didn't deserve to be that much outrage. And now I want to make one last point about this. And it is a true point, but it is a boring point because it's so very true. But it's so very true that I I think it absolutely needs to be made. If I'm being dramatic, I will say it is the truest thing you will ever hear if your ears are being honest with you. Almost none of everything I've described, almost none of it is a real life phenomenon. It's not only internet, there's plenty of nasty things being said in broadcast media, but you just can't imagine having a discussion with real people in a real room where someone stakes out a position that a squib kick is a mighty blow for womankind, and then someone else says, no, you're too woke, you've been tricked. You've had an ideology foisted upon you. And anyway, even if two people are saying that, A, they've been infected by what they see online, but B, there's going to be someone else there saying, no, 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 guys, guys, take it down a notch. Here's what really happened. Mostly the discussion in real life goes like this. Hey, you see that female kicker? No, I didn't. What happened? Her kick went about 25 yards. Eh, maybe she'll get a chance to do better next time. Maybe someone, like the harshest critique you'll get is someone will say, you know, can she even hit an extra point? And then someone else will say, oh yeah, I saw clips of her hitting an extra point in practice. And then everyone will say, oh, well, you know, let's see it in a game. Let's see it. So I don't know what gets in the way of that, you know, less than thrilling, but somewhat productive conversation. I don't know why that can't be had online. I don't know if it's small, subtle micro gestures that are taking place in real life that can't be picked up. I don't know if it's the very dynamics of interpersonal reactions. I don't know it's if it's in real life, we're very much disincentivized to have conflict. The opposite is true online. It might have something to do with communication silos, might have to do with purposefully and cynically optimizing online interactions for conflict. But I got to say, it's the worst social trend of my lifetime. What has happened to the discourse, how by running so much through this online filter, it becomes so much worse. The inability to have a nice disagreement without stakes or drama. All right. That was, that was long. That was spiely. That was Antan Twiggy. So now let's pivot to the award for our best listener or best interactor-er. Let's award the lobstar of the Antan Twig. So first, to, and to get there, I want to give you a little update on the story of uh, Georgia Senator and Senate candidate Kelly Leffler. The Huffington Post, as I talked about on the show, broke a story, quote unquote, broke a story that Leffler and her husband benefited from insider knowledge in making trades in stock. And the insider knowledge was about the CARES Act passing. Rather than recount my entire argument, an argument so off-putting that I warned you about it and gave you time codes so you could skip it, I will summarize it this way. The original HuffPost story made a lot of the trades, but there are a lot of other explanations other than insider knowledge. Insider knowledge could have been an explanation, so could a lot of other explanations, some of them I think being more plausible than insider trading. Okay, long story short, Huffington Post story didn't get there. They tried, they whiffed. It was picked up by progressive sites like Mother Jones and the Daily Beast and BillMoyers.com. But I will say this, and I did say this at the time, watch to see if the Atlanta Journal-Constitution picks up the story. Watch to see if the New York Times and the Washington Post picks it up or advances it. And they didn't. None of them, none of them did. And that proved my point to an extent that this wasn't a great story. 
didn't really deserve to be widely disseminated. So you could say maybe the system worked. It didn't go, quote unquote, mainstream. Or maybe you could say the system didn't work because it wasn't really debunked by anyone but me and thousands and thousands of people have tweeted about or tweeted literally that story or tweeted about it and think it's true. You know, I don't, I don't know if it proves that the system works or doesn't work. I think it proves that there really is no system, not the old system. The New York Times can't gatekeep for anyone else but the New York Times, and they're having a harder time even gatekeeping for the New York Times. But it is true that even though they're not gatekeeping for anyone else, the AJC, the NYT, the WAPO, they had they ran their own versions of the story, that story would have been amplified. They didn't. It wasn't. So I guess I'll take that. And as for my personal side of things, which was mostly agonizing, maybe tongue-in-cheek agonizing over, why do I feel compelled to cover a story that helps Kelly Leffler, at least doesn't hurt her? I want to pass on one email I got. It was from, hope I'm pronouncing this right, Melinda Padke, P-H-A-D-K-E. Um, usually people don't go with the F pronunciation in surnames, but if you do, I'm sorry, Melinda Padke. I'm going to say Padke. Hi, Mike. Hearing your defense of Kelly Leffler... I fear you may be accused of toxic fairness. You see how that flatters me and tickles me. And you see how I in kind reward you, Melinda Fadkey, Padkey, possibly Padkey, with the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Margaret Kelly has been selected to serve on the Slate Podcast executive team. But this will leave the gist with a bare minimum plurality will be unable to form a coalition to stave off a hostile takeover from what next? Daniel Schrader, just producer, has already been approached by insiders of what next TBD to serve on its executive council, but fears that if he leaves his seat open, it could be filled with someone, maybe even a wacky sound effects type person. See? See what that would mean? Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She remembers that bad beat when she got outkicked after drawing dead to a double belly buster. She won't shut up about it. The gist. I can run like Mike Pence. I can clap like Mike Pence. But I am still trying to perfect the Mike Pence patented running clap not seen since Bodies in Motion by Galad. Oompuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.